Um, the one that looks like a little ghost from Pac-Man. That's a great question. No, that wasn't just you. That's a great question. <laughs> we bring you news from the front. Hi. I'm going to go over in a corner and now cry. Hello and welcome to another potentially useful episode of the TCAPS Loop Podcast. My name is Larry Burden and he is an optional expression of learning. It's the technologist, Stephen Noller. Also joining us is his tag team partner coming off the top ISTE turnbuckle. It's Daniel Brostrom. So David was doing the people's elbow, I do believe. That's right. That's and I was right. trying to I was trying to figure out a way to tie that in so that Daniel would get it even remotely and I couldn't do it. But you still did you did it. So there we go. Love it. Moving on before we ring the bell on another episode, let's pause and reflect with the TCAPS loop moment of Zen. To banish imperfection is to destroy expression, to check exertion, to paralyze vitality. John Ruskin. ISTE standard 1.6. Creative communicator. It says students communicate clearly and express themselves creatively for a variety of purposes using the platforms, tools, styles, formats, and digital media appropriate to their goals. Why are you guys so drawn to this particular standard? What makes it so compelling? For me as a classroom teacher who, you know, as somebody who's been working with kids for the last 25 plus years, we see every day that we give students the same thing to do in the same way. Um, We see that in our classrooms all the time. But the best way that I've seen my kids interact with material and express their learning is when you give them a choice. We tend to only do that once in a while rather than having it be a regular occurrence because there are certain things we need to have them do to get to that point. But when we allow those students to express their learning in a way that makes sense to them, I think it's easier for them to contextualize their learning in a way that makes sense to them rather than trying to fit it into whatever it is that the teacher contextualizes that information to be important in. Did that make any sense at all? By giving students the opportunity to to put the learning into their context of understanding, um, they can then express that learning in a way that makes sense to them. And if their expression of learning makes sense to them, they're more likely to have learned it in a way that's going to stick with them long term. I think that's where I see the neurons start firing on kids. You know what I mean? Like if they're mindlessly filling out the worksheet or answering the questions, it doesn't look active. It doesn't look like they're super engaged. And nobody looks excited to be, you know, filling that out and answering those multiple choice questions again. But if you give them that project or let them express it in their own way, that's when you do see them getting excited and trying to figure out how they can make it fun and how they can, you know, do it in Minecraft or how they can do it through music or how they can do it through something that they're passionate about. And I think that's where you see learning come alive for kids. When you first started mentioning this, Dave, I initially was like, well, isn't this counter to some of the discussions we've had over the past couple of weeks about routine? Oh, no. Um, in fact, I think this is something that that could, and if I can even dare to say should, 
become routine. It's not a thing that I do in my classroom. It's a thing that that can be available to be done K through 12 in every classroom so that by the time students become middle school, high school students, they've had practice of choosing the way in which they express their learning. Routine is just a way to say it's something that we do over and over again. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same thing, that it's static, or that it's only one way. The reason I brought that up as a counterpoint to what we're discussing is is to what to Dave's point, those are not mutually exclusive. You know, you can set up routines that encourage students to express learning in a way that makes sense to them, as opposed to learning that's more efficient for the teacher. I think oftentimes we've we've constructed routines that are conducive to the educator as opposed to the learner. Yes. I would even argue, Larry, that giving kids choice and letting them learn in this way is probably more efficient in the long run because you're not constantly reteaching and reteaching and half the kids don't get it. And now I'm pulling a small group and now I'm trying to get them to do it in this way. They understand it. They just need to be able to work through it in a different way. And I do think, too, that in in that notion of routines, everything that we do that's new is disruptive in the beginning. When we first started using, the, even back to just Google Docs and Google Presentations, just those two simple tools a million years ago, it was disruptive. But over time, we've gotten used to those routines, and today, it's a no-brainer. Same thing is true of when we started using Google Classroom or Brightspace. These are always disruptive in the beginning. It's when they become routine that they're more easily uh, adapted to by both the teachers and the learners. And one of the things that I think is important is that by allowing students to choose the way in which they're going to express their learning, the teacher doesn't have to be the expert of all those things. The teacher can be aware of some of them, and kids will show them what they like to use, but the teacher doesn't have to be the expert. The other kids in the room can be the expert. So if someone's creating a website using Google Sites and somebody else says, hey, I'd like to do that, teacher doesn't have to be the expert. The teacher can say, you know what? Sally's doing one of those. Get some help from her. And I think we need to remember and recognize that doing this kind of thing takes time. And sometimes we're not so willing to give that up right away. But I think Very that's true. okay. Very true. It does take an investment of time. And when we have the mindset of we have curriculum to cover rather than skills and strategies for them to be comfortable with, that's when sometimes things get in the way. Well, I have 100 more years of history to get through. What are what's the standard that we're that we're aiming at? Because that the, should be the goal, not necessarily the, the coverage. The term that you're using, I think, is important. We have a hundred years of history to get through. Not yeah. they have a hundred years of history to learn. <laughs> you know what? What is our goal there? Is our goal to get through it, or is our goal to have the students learn the content? If our goal is to have the students learn the content, we're going to do the best thing for them to learn it, not the best thing to get through right. the content. We want them to to um, 
be able to demonstrate their learning. And the old adage, measure, measure twice, cut once. If we're doing it right the first time, and by doing that, we're allowing that choice because we're looking at it from the learner's point of view, how best that they'll interact with that learning. Not at the end of the process go, let's assess and then find out, oops, we measured wrong. That analogy uh, connected all. Was I close? Oh, yeah. There was something that uh, you had provided, David, that I thought was interesting, and that was the difference between a standard and an assignment. You had mentioned that this is an ISTE standard and not an assignment. What is the difference there, and why is that yeah. important? Well, I think when you're when you're talking about an assignment, an assignment is something that you do, right? An assignment is something that you complete on a particular day or with a particular product in mind. Whereas the standard is the expression of an understanding. You know, a standard is something that can be practiced over and over again at multiple levels from K-12, right? And so because it's a standard, I can ask Danielle, because she's here, how can we offer our youngest students the opportunity to express themselves create creatively using a variety of platforms? And my answer is going to be, it's going to be mostly hands-on. It's going to be building things. It's going to be making things. It's going to be really scaled down, but a lot of it's going to be hands-on. Yeah. And then I can go to my middle school teachers who are not present with us today, sadly, and say, okay, in elementary school, we had students uh, expressing themselves creatively using a variety of tools and platforms. How can we start to um, move them from that physical manipulative into some of these um, digital tools that might be appropriate for their grade level, for That's their That's where I would see kids using tech more, David, yeah. because they're doing more um, screencasts and maybe they're doing um, something in Google Slides and movies. And like, I really see them embracing the tech side in middle school. Yep. And then we can go to high school and say, okay, elementary did this. Middle school was starting to screencast and do some of these ideas. How can we leverage that for students to really dig in and not only maybe express themselves creatively, but choose what to express and choose their learning path as like the natural end result of, of this standard. So it's not a thing to do. It's, it's a way of learning and a way of expressing that can be done K-12. Do we have some guidance or um, a, a knowledge base on what is what tools are appropriate for those ages? Are we just spitballing out there, or do we have? It, it, are there some structures that we're looking at that we're go? Okay, this is this is what we should be doing for our K through six or K through two students. This is what we should be doing. Do we have standards there? I mean, we're talking about the ISTE standards, but specifically about. These are the tools that would be appropriate for these age groups. I'm going to go to, oh, go ahead, David. I was just going to say one of the things that I saw, and it was kind of early in the push to use uh, technology in the classroom, was early readers that would record themselves reading these simple picture books, and they had, re they had drawn new illustrations and so they would show their version of what they heard in the book 
what they read in the book and they would draw their new illustrations and they'd create a kind of uh, a screencast of them showing their drawings as they, as they read it. Now they weren't the ones probably setting up the website and hitting record and setting up the camera, but they were participating in that experience. And it's a technologically mediated experience as I call it sometimes. And then that got to be shared out with the other stakeholders, the parents and the the other teachers and the school family and that kind of thing. It's interesting to see a project like that evolve too. Like I'm thinking of two specific teachers that I work with and one of them is doing that in kindergarten using Seesaw because it's very easy to turn it on. The kids can do it all themselves. And then I've got a fifth grade teacher who is doing that exact same project, but they are writing their own picture books, and then they're going to um, turn them into actual books that can be in the library and shared with other students. And just it's interesting to see a project like that could really evolve and be used at different grade levels. Larry, going back to your question, I would instantly, so we know that the ISTE standards and the MITEX are like the same thing. So the MITEX are the Michigan Integrated Technology Competencies for Students. And there are a ton of resources on the techplan.org site, which is the MyTax site, and they will go down and break it down by age band in different scenarios. So I think even reading through those is a good way to kind of ground yourself in what could be accomplished at your grade level. Seems like that would be really useful. Well, you know, we'll include that in the show notes because I think, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is the tech landscape is vast. And a teacher can get very overwhelmed and maybe go down the wrong path with their students or worry that they're going to go down the wrong path with their students and, you know, start a start a project or allow a level of choice there and it not be appropriately developmentally appropriate for their age group with so many options available. And to have that narrowed down at least a little bit so that they can go, okay, this is this would be appropriate. And maybe here are some samples or examples because you don't want to have a student get stuck. Sure. You want to give them a starting point. And when we do things like this in class, I always throw out a few options to start with. And the the final one is always, or something else that you think would meet the expectations of the assignment, check it with me first, and I'm probably going to say yes. My goal is to say yes, even if I have to like massage it a little bit and say, sure, but if I have to take their idea and just push it a little bit. I want to say yes, if I can. And I don't, I can't think of an occasion where I'd said, no, that won't work. But the goal is to, you know, as I said, (laughs) the goal is to be able to say, yes, try that. Let's see if it, let's see if it works. Let's see if that makes sense. That leads into that idea where, you know, sometimes we learn from the, from our frustrations and we learn from our struggles and that's, that's okay too. I also want to mention, if you are local and you want to try some kind of learning like this, if you're in TCAPs, contact your ed tech coaches. David and I live for this stuff. If we know your topic and kind of what how, how you want to get started and your level, like we are there for you. Yep. And if you're not local to TCAPs, reach out to your REMC. They have instructional tech people on board and are willing to help. Like you can find people to help you maneuver through this. Great teachers are not born. They are created by the teacher next door. Let people help you. And that's a, that last part is a great point too, because more and more we have teachers that are 
you know, they're up and coming. They've been through the new stuff when they were students and they're discovering new things. So in addition to Danielle and myself, maybe it's the history teacher you teach right next door to that's doing something cool. And more and more of that collaboration is important to to build the rest of our practice. I'm getting to the point now where I'm the old guy in the department. There's all these young people that are coming for my stuff in terms of the English department, right? David, I think getting happened a long time ago. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I'm officially, I, I believe I'm the oldest uh, teacher in my department at my school currently. So that's fun. Um, but yeah, I got to learn from the new people that are coming up. The ones that were my students when they were in high school, for example. And now they're back and they're my colleagues and it's great. But they have important things to teach me. So as an educator, um, what helped you feel safe creating those options for students or, or having those options be available for students? Because you want to have also a safe, safe environment mentally for yourself to teach. You have to kind of have a clear headspace to be able to do this. What helped you create that headspace so that you felt comfortable giving those options to students? For me, it was having a supportive administrator who was okay with letting me try things that were outside the box, that were a little different, backed me 100% every time. And it was my mentor teacher across the way who I could go to and be like, oh my gosh, this was a disaster, Mike. I don't know what happened. And having somebody to talk through that with at that higher level when you talk really good nerdy educational stuff, like that was what helped me feel better about trying things. Uh, for me, it was uh, some initial failures of I thought I was doing the teachery thing that w I was supposed to do and doing things sort of a traditional way. And I was seeing my students struggle. And I had a student, this was 1995-ish, who was an amazing artist, like painting, things that I can't do. And she asked me if she could create a piece of artwork instead of this writing piece. And my initial thought was, mm, I mean, you're supposed to write about Macbeth. What do you, what do you, how are you going to do that with a, a painting? And so she said, okay, I'll make my painting and then I'll explain it. And I went, I, again, even then I, I wanted to say yes. So I said, okay, fine. Maybe my first year, second year teaching. I said, okay, great. Let's let's do that. And she made this thing, and I don't have it anymore. I don't know where it went. I'm so sad that it, it has disappeared. But it was this amazing piece. It was abstract. Uh, it used red as the base color. It had gold and silver, like almost metallic paint dripping from the sides of it. There were, there were some other colors on the side too. It's very abstract. And then she spent about 10 minutes talking about how she chose the colors, why she why she used this kind of paint as opposed to this other uh, textured paint that she used, what the colors represented and symbolized, and how this represented the king, and this was Macbeth, and over here. And after about this 10-minute discussion, and that included me asking her questions, and the kids asking her questions too. And I went, oh my gosh, that's better than probably any essay I could get from kids about, 
you know, what do you understand about the play Macbeth or the character and whatever the topic was, I don't recall. But that was kind of the moment when I went, ding, okay, let's see what we can get from kids if we offer them different ways to get there. Very inspiring. That was awesome. Right yeah. there, David. That's everything. That was that was it for me. So Did you so, hear my chair squeak when I rock back and forth? <laughs> and then he does that. Because I don't mean to do that. <laughs> Are you going to start talking <laughs> no. like this again, too? So, so, so Dave does, has this wonderfully, uh, this powerful statement, and then immediately goes to, <laughs> does this make noise? Here we go. You met me, right? <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. So there's a lot more here. Is there anything else you guys wanted to hit on this? Because there, there's certainly a lot more, but you know that was actually a pretty darn good spot to kind of start to close it out on. So, all right. So uh, tech tool of the week. Does anybody have a tech tool of the week? Anyone? Bueller? First tech tool of the week is the Global Oneness Project. It is globaloneness.project.org. It is a free multimedia platform for educators and students. It has um, some cool immersive storytelling and curriculum that really helps you explore some of the deeper issues affecting humanity. It's beautiful. I was looking through a lesson this morning. It was a storytelling lesson about language keepers and indigenous communities in California who are working to revitalize their language and their culture. And just thinking through what we talked about today, what could the kids do with this? Like having this information and listening to these um, real people speak about their language and their history and their people. And there's just some pretty cool, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about how kids could show their learning and how we could use something like this in the classroom. So that's my first tech tool of the week. Keep rolling. Keep rolling. Okay. My second tech tool of the week is just a reminder to practice some good information hygiene. There is a lot going on right now in the world, and there are a lot of bots and misinformation and things that are being shared that are not images that are current or not facts that are current. So just do some quick checking, um, pause, don't let your emotions take over, glance through the comments, has someone already fact-checked it, do a quick search, and ask for the source if possible. Follow real journalists during this time, because... This is going to get crazy with uh, misinformation here. So newslet.org is a great resource if you're looking to dive into some of that, some of those things. Wise words. So we were, we're going to close this out. Um, in closing, you can find us on Twitter at TCAPS Loop. At Technologist. At Brostrom DA. All right. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Downcast, Overcast, or wherever else. You get your ear candy. I knew I didn't have enough breath there, but I tried. Uh, thanks for listening and inspiring. That that might be that might be the place to start. <laughs> no, it's okay because Larry's a master editor. He will just take this chunk out and put it before the last chunk, and it'll be fine. Right, Larry? No, see, I don't think you know when you're on it. When you're on a technologist pod. We just, just let, let the go. chaos roll. No, <laughs> we no, just wait, let you the always chaos edit this. roll. <laughs> oh.